Welcome to The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want the truth about having a healthy, happy, strong body. Remember, your body was meant to move. Now here's your host, Stephen Sashen. A recent scientific discovery shocked me and probably will shock you as well. Women have no feet. Yes, you heard me right. Women have no feet. At least that seems to be the way big footwear companies treat women and their feet. And we're going to find out more about that on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting with the feet first, because those things are your foundation. We're going to be breaking through the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the lies that people have told you about what it takes to run, to walk, to hike, to do yoga, CrossFit, whatever it is that you do on your feet, and to do it healthily, enjoyably, efficiently. I'm Stephen Sashin, your host and the CEO of Zero Shoes at ZeroShoes.com. And you know we call this the Movement Movement Podcast because it's a movement. That means it involves you, and I'll say more about that in a second. And it's about movement because, well, you know, bodies are made to move. So here's the part that's about you. If you like what you're hearing, then please share and like and review and give us a thumbs up and, you know, hit the subscribe button and the bell on YouTube, all those things you know how to do. If you don't know how to find all those things, just go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com and you'll find all the previous episodes as well as all the places you can interact with this content, et cetera, et cetera. You know how to do it. The simplest thing I can say is if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's talk about women who have no feet. Um, I am joined by someone who I've known for a number of years and really, really admired, and I'm really thrilled to have him on, and that's Jeffrey Gray. And Jeffrey uh, has a company called Helux. And Jeffrey, why don't you say who the hell you are, what the hell you do, and then let's talk about women with no feet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephen. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's, it's been great uh, chatting with you over the years, man. It's, I don't even know how many years that we've, we've known each other now. but you know, It's been more than either of us would like to admit. Yeah, you know, I think I think both of us have a, a, a you know pretty young company still in our eyes, but we've been around for many many years now. So, I you know my name is Jeffrey Gray. I have a, my doctorate in physical therapy, and that was really my my intro into uh, the world. Is I had a great physical therapy practice for over a decade. Worked with everything from athletes to everyday people, focused on um, how to keep their feet healthy. Uh, and I was fortunate to be trained by. Some great mentors, uh, some of the people that pioneered orthotic therapy and arthroscopic surgery of the foot. So I just got to learn a lot about feet. And one of the things that really struck me through that whole time was that I still think to this day, the scientific community doesn't know everything we need to know about feet. So that means that there's a lot of stuff that we can still explore. Well, let's, pa- let's pause there. So what are yeah. some of the things that you think they haven't looked into? Or, I mean, look, it, it's an interesting phenomenon that obviously a lot of research really kicked in around the time that people were developing modern athletic shoes, padded motion control, higher heel, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so a lot of the research has been slanted in that direction uh, in large part because it's been sponsored by the companies promoting those products. So yeah. what do you think you know, hasn't been explored? You know, again, with feet, there's so much stuff, but maybe if I give you guys a, uh, an example of something that really changed how people understand feet, there's a, a really great surgeon named Alan Selner out of, uh, out of Los Angeles, wonderful guy and uh, very talented. And bunions are a huge problem. We don't really need to get into the etiology of where they come from right now, but he was looking at, you know, the normal bunion surgery is you have this big bony deformity on the inside part of your ball, your foot. It grows out. It's a big, hard, bony lump, and the joint's all stiff. The way to fix it is that they would just go hack off some of that bone, take a pin, and shove it straight and force it to be there. 
And the failure rate on these surgeries was horrible. The activity afterwards was terrible. And so I always knew that it wasn't a problem. And I just used to tell my patients, that's like our last course. Like, let's try and do everything else we can to get you asymptomatic or at least tolerably symptomatic before you get that surgery because it sucks. And most people have to have that surgery redone. Well, Alan Selner took a look at it and he's like, you know, the problem isn't the joint. The problem is how when the foot drops and the first ray starts to rotate, it changes the angle of the joint. Our body is smart and realizes that now that joint isn't aligned how it used to. So it's going to lay up more bony tissue to try and support that new orientation. But while that does protect it in a short term, it creates a longer term problem of a progressively stiffening bunion. Right. So the idea is rather than pin it straight. He's like, well, let's unrotate that bone, take away the joint capsule that's gotten like really thickened. So now the joint can flex again. Right. We're good. And so, I mean, the, the very first patient I saw with this was somebody whose foot was so deformed, I couldn't get them into a shoe when I was doing a shoe fitting clinic at a store. She was on the elliptical, I think two weeks post and training for a half marathon, six weeks post. And I, I was just blown away and her, her joint functioned normally. So it's a little bit more of an example story of there's people out there that are thinking about the, about the human foot in new ways and exploring and trying to understand what happens. And it creates a major impact into all of our lives. It's, it's interesting. There's a, a sort of variation. One of the things that I run into all the time is people saying, hey, I have plantar fasciitis. And nine times out of 10, I look at them and I say, no, you don't. And they say, what? I have, you know, my super expensive doctor told me that I did and I'm going to get plantar fasciitis surgery. I said, yeah, so your doctor, and I say this with, you know, how do I put it? With all due respect, which means you have none, your doctor's a moron. And I say, so here's what's going on. Let me, let me just show you something. And I can, because you can sort of see these things. I will stick my thumb at the spot in their calf that is clearly super tight. And I'll just dig in there for a while. And then I say, now go walk around and see how it feels. And they walk around and they go, oh my God, that feels like 90% better. I go, yeah, you didn't have plantar fasciitis. You have tight calves pulling on the Achilles, pulling on the plantar fascia, et cetera, et cetera. Or I have people, I did this with a guy. He was a um, big deal venture capitalist. And he said, I love what you're doing, but I can't wear your shoes because I have plantar fasciitis. I said, so can you just stand on your toes, just elevate your heels and stand on your toes? He goes, yeah. I said, does that hurt? He says, no. I said, okay, can you just like run in place a little just while staying on your toes? Just, you know, just really a little bit, just bounce back and forth. He goes, yeah. I said, does that hurt? He goes, no. I said, do you know why? He said, no. I said, well, you're keeping your plantar fascia in a strong position while you're just bouncing back and forth. Can you just keep bouncing back and forth and lean forward and see what happens? And then of course he starts running and, uh, and just start, and, and as he's running, he's screaming, holy crap. And so I said, so <laughs> clearly, you know, you don't have plantar fasciitis or you wouldn't be able to do that. He still went and had the surgery, you know? <laughs> so this is the thing that amazes me is that it's, I guess it's a case of if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, that there's so yeah, much totally. of that going on when it comes to lower extremities and especially feet and ankles that yeah. I'm just sort of blown away. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, kind of circles back to, to everything we could talk about shoes or foot and ankle injuries is that it's very easy to get really myopic and look at like one feature of a shoe or one part of the body and say that this is the problem, but really everything is connected. It's a lot more difficult to look at the body that way. And, but when you do, you get these really great outcomes, you know? And so it's like that cause and effect, like what are the things that influence all of this and and trying to break it down scientifically is a challenge, but fun. Well, (laughs) well, there's more to it than that. So your point of everything is, is connected and analyzing things that way is more complicated. 
This is, I think, the one of the real challenges, it's, and it goes in two directions. The first is, I'm going to say, from the consumer. And I don't mean someone buying a product. I'm like the consumer of physical therapy, for example. They expect that there's a simple, easy, quick answer for whatever they walk in with. And of course, as a medical practitioner, you want to provide some benefit. You want to provide what they want. You want to give them something so that, frankly, even if it's a long course of action, you're giving them something so they get the hint that there's light at the end of the tunnel so they keep coming back yeah. and they're compliant with what you're recommending. But then there's the second part, which is that most practitioners, and I'm going to upset a few people right now. No, actually, I won't. I was going to, well, I'll say most practitioners don't have the eyes to see. And so seeing that complicated thing and trying to work and figure it out on the fly, because you're not going to just get it immediately and have an instant prescription. And when I said, you know, this is going to piss some people off, I realized it won't because everyone who's listening to this is going to think, well, I'm doing great. But Irene Davis does this event with Brian Heiderscheidt and, oh gosh, I just blanked on a name. So embarrassing. Anyway, it's called The Science of Running Medicine. His name will pop into my head in a second. And the two other people, Brian and the guy whose name I'm blanking on right now, they present a relatively simple intervention for running injuries. Irene presents this whole very linear but complex thing for how to diagnose and treat running injuries that I would argue is probably more valuable in the long run, but takes good eyes to see and people who are patient and willing to put in the work. And when you go to the event, most people gravitate towards the other two because it's the simpler solution that's easier to implement and easier for people to understand, even if it's not the ultimate solution. Yeah. So anyway, my point being... on art to making the complex simple, right? Yes, exactly. And so I'm, I love that you're doing all the research you're doing, and we're about to jump into that. And But then there's that other part, before we get into the research, of like getting it out into the public, and by public I mean both practitioners and consumers, in a way that gets adopted and gets used. So, you know, you're doing all this stuff. Talk about the phenomenon of getting people to go, oh, and then put it into practice. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that ties into where I'm at now, right? So after my PT career, uh, or not after, it kind of started in my PT career. I started testing shoes, working with some new equipment that hadn't existed before, but we had it at the pro athlete testing facility that we uh, worked out of and uh, finding out how shoes influence first these athletes, uh, both from an injury perspective and a performance perspective, which I think is often ignored outside of running. And, uh, and just started studying things. And then footwear brands started asking me to test their product with a few goals. And that was really the start of Helux was footwear brands wanted to have access to independent lab testing that was unbiased. They wanted it to have testing done on actual people doing the activity that they were do- normally doing. <laughs> oh, oh, that. And then they wanted the reports to be something that not only made the science easy for them to understand, but also gave them recommendations on how to make their shoes better. And so really, if I summarize what my life is about now is how do we help footwear brands make shoes better for everyone in the world? And that can obviously be better is a lot of different things, but we've been boiling down for the last 10 years now. Next month is our uh, 10-year anniversary. So, Oh, congrats. We had ours uh, four or five months ago. So. Yeah, see, I knew we were like right on like the same timelines on business yeah. side. Right? It's crazy. Uh, congrats, on it, man. It's, it's a huge landmark to make it this far. Thanks. And ditto. It's funny. I had a, in a previous company I was, that I had, at one point I was visiting my parents. They were having some sort of party. I don't know what was going on. And one of their friends is a guy who had been the CEO of a, and co-founder of some multi-billion dollar brands. And he came up to me literally crying 
And he said, uh, how long has your business been around? I said, five years. He goes, do you have any idea how rare that is? And uh, <laughs> it was like the first time that I took a moment to go, oh, wow. And same thing where we are now. Now it's 10 years. So, and I don't want to go too far on this tangent yet. How often did you see that companies that were coming to you for research were actually hoping for some confirmation bias? I mean, that's a weird way of putting it, but I hope no, that's a, that's a great question, man. I will tell you like, because when I started doing all this testing, luckily it was almost like a side hustle at the beginning. I was still treating patients full time and I was doing the testing because I believed in it, but I was just doing it on the side and fitting it in where I could. And it was just me. Like, you know, I didn't have support staff or anything like that. It was just me grinding out because I thought it was important to do. A lot of the brands that first were coming to me didn't want us to test their existing product. They wanted to test product that was in development. And that I was really great because that's where I saw that we could make the biggest change. And that's what made me feel the best. And to kind of your point about how do we get this message out into the world, rather than making published research papers that only other scientists were going to read, I realized that if we made the reports really easy, that it would spread like a wildfire through the brand. Everybody would want to see it. And then I would get asked to go to sales meeting. And then uh, there I could talk about what we did to make the shoe better and how it actually worked. And then now those salespeople brought it to the stores and then the stores brought it to the customers and we created this loop on how to get the data out there. There was a few studies early on that people contacted us and said, hey, we have this product. Here's what we know it does. We just need to prove it so that we can market it. I did not do very many of those studies before I realized that we weren't actually making those shoes better. It was, to your point, trying to reinforce their bias. And in doing that, usually those studies actually didn't show what those brands had kind of believed about their shoes. You know, a lot of times the the products didn't do things well, or maybe if it did something well, there was a huge detriment that in my opinion really was not an advantage. And so as a quick story, this is a a quick example because Helix started in, in 2010. And as you know, that was a down economy, but we were also in the midst of one of the fastest growing segments of the shoe industry ever, which was the toning shoe market. And the very first big brand who will remain nameless, but the very first big brand that I ever tested before came to me and said, hey, we have these toning shoes. There's everybody. Let's hold on just to pause there. So for people who don't know. Toning shoes, the idea was that by wearing these things, it was going to increase muscle activation, particularly it was going to give you a butt like Kim Kardashian. That was one of the ads yep. companies. And so, yes, just by wearing them, you get toning. Now, my, my contention was any toning benefits you would get were simply because these things typically weighed a ton. So it's like having ankle weights on. Uh, but yeah, again, 18 ounce shoe, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, all right. So now that people have a context for what toning shoes are, please continue. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing some of the brands that were first out there did look like they had marketing campaigns based on science. It was, you know, hard numbers. It said 38% more butt muscle activation. Right. Right. So this brand came to me and said, hey, this is the fastest growing new segment of the shoe industry ever. We want a part of it. Here's our shoe. Can you test it? Find out calorie burn and muscle activation and all these things. I was like, yeah, I can do that. So we went, tested their shoe, tested a bunch of the other products and tested against controls, found nothing. To your point, there was only one shoe that showed any sort of difference, but it literally was a 20 ounce shoe. So like a pound and a quarter and these other ones that are like, you know, a half a pound. So anyway, you know, we, we didn't find anything. And me being the honest scientist, I was concerned. I talked to my mentor. I was like, well, what do I do? They, they're counting on this. They have these marketing campaigns. They're spending all this money. He's like, dude, you're a scientist. You have to, you have to hold true to what you know is right with the data. So I went to them and uh, obviously this is a big deal for me because it's a big company. And I remember being on the phone call, presenting the data to them. 
Uh, we didn't have Zoom at that time, so we couldn't be face-to-face, -face, thank God. And, uh, and they yelled at me so bad. They were screaming, cursing. They're like, how the F did we waste all this money with you? Your lab is a piece of S. We could have gone to somebody else that has a better lab. And that hurts when you're a small company, you know? Like, I'm like, oh, I'm losing this as a potential client. And they're saying that I suck. Like, that doesn't feel good. So fast forward six months later, uh, I'm still in the PT clinic working part-time at this point. And uh, usually what I would do is I would take like my business calls at the four patients, lunchtime and at the end of the day. So lunchtime comes and I get a call and I look at the ID and it's them. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to them. Last time I talked to them six months ago, they yelled at me. They told me I sucked. So I didn't take the call, but they left me a message and, and I didn't listen to it. But I called my mentor and I was like, hey, Ian, like, what do I do, man? He's like, dude, we live in Santa Barbara. It's beautiful. Your business is doing fine. You're growing. You don't need them right now. So just drive to the beach after work. And if they start yelling at you, just put the phone down and let them yell and get it out because it's like, you don't need them. <laughs> I'm up. And unfortunately, I didn't realize everything that had happened that day, but that was the day that the big lawsuits hit. And, uh, you know, 20 to $30 million lawsuits against these companies bankrupted countless companies, you know, yeah. tens of, of companies bankrupt. And they called me to say, thank you. Because of the report that we gave them, they ended up killing that product line. Just oh, wow. Money that they lost. They were able to save face and avoid all of these big lawsuits that had hit. So they were grateful. And so if anything, we've been rewarded for holding true to the science and moving against bias. But yeah, it's kind of a funny story to look back. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm glad we did what we did at that time. No, that's great. Well, look, you know, the other part, though, and to, to your point, about making it accessible to people so that it can arguably go viral. This is a, something that I've said to, to Irene and Sarah Ridge and a number of people who've done research on natural movement. So, you know, the problem is when you publish this stuff, it's just not sexy. It's just not something that makes people go ooh and ah. And more, there's not billion-dollar companies who are behind what you're doing who have access to the media where they can just send a press release and it gets printed almost verbatim. I mean, the one I've been talking about lately is Nike has – they sponsored a study that they say is independent, which is a very interesting thing. Um, they created the training plan, again, for the independent study. I'm using air quotes a lot today. And, <laughs> uh, and, and now what they're advertising is, hey, this product was, quote, designed to reduce injury. Well, that was the design. And according to the study, it did reduce injury, except that what you don't see until you really dig in, and I did, and I contacted the person who did the study, is that they compared the new shoe to the old shoe and the, and the new shoe was 50% fewer injuries, except that the old shoe, their best-selling motion control shoe, during the course of the study, over 30% of the people got injured. And so in the new shoe, quote, only 15% got injured. Yeah. And this is supposed to be good. And so yeah. the way it's published in the media is reduced injury by 50%. Didn't say one out of seven people are still getting injured in a 10 to 12-week period, which is yeah. mind-numbing. Yeah. So there was a thing I wanted to say about that, the independent study. So look, you know that my particular, and I'll, I'll use the word bias for the fun of it, is that natural movement is the most important thing, that letting your feet do what they can is the most important thing. And the design of almost every shoe that doesn't allow that, which is most footwear, is getting in the way. I mean, I love that you, one, one of the things that you described before is how you were researching how the footwear was affecting people and performance. Because most, the, the way it's typically presented, first of all, is that the footwear doesn't have a negative impact on performance in any way. And in fact, it's sold, all sold with the idea that it's going to improve performance and, and reduce injuries the way that like the, all the new Nike stuff, all the super, super thick, super lightweight stuff is now. And this is something, do, do you know Bill Sands? No. Bill was the head of biomechanics for the U.S. Olympic Committee. He okay. had a lab. 
at uh, what's now Colorado Mesa University that it was like a million dollar lab, a super fun. And people used to call him to have him research stuff. And same thing. They wanted to prove the point that they were trying to sell. I said, how many times have you been able to demonstrate that the point they wanted to make was actually valid? He goes, pretty much none. And what he would do when he got in his lab, he'd put you in your favorite shoe and have you run on a giant treadmill, five feet wide, 10 feet long in a mission impossible harness. So if you face planted, you know, you're going to just float over the ground, which is super fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then he'd film you at 500 frames a second, which is critical. He said, you know, anything under 250, you don't get the data you need, yep. which seemed crazy to me until we discovered that when he analyzed me in the last frame at 500 frames a second, my right foot was turning out slightly averting just before it hit the ground. And that pointed us to a hamstring issue. It was like, oh, but anyway, so then he'd have you run in your favorite shoes, then run barefoot, then just try every other shoe that you ever wore, like kind of doing an eye test, you know, better, worse, better, worse, better, worse. And he found almost without question, 90% of the people without any intervention, without any instruction were better barefoot. And by better, it was meaning, you know, just looking at how their hips were moving, if there was vastus valgus, if their knees were caving in, how, the, how much vibration there was in their calf, how they were applying force into the ground, et cetera. And every other shoe was, you know, he was then comparing to what was that now standard. And very rarely did he ever, in fact, I don't think he ever found anything that ended up being better than that. So it was a question of how close can we get to that? So that was his thing. So that's the long prelude to, you know, my bias. So I'm curious in terms of making shoes better when I think the only way to make them better is to rip them apart and get rid of almost all the design features that makes them familiar. Talk to me about that whole thing that I just said that was going to turn into a question, but I got lost in it. No, nah, it's okay. You know, this is, this is what I like to do all day is talk about what is better. And to me, the, the one thing that is really apparent in a lot of what we quote unquote know, I'll use air quotes too. What we know about shoes is really, we know about running shoes. Running shoes have been the most studied thing on the planet. If you look at any of the footwear journals or any of the footwear research, it's going to be over 90% running shoes. And there are so many other important categories of footwear out there. So Helux, we're really fortunate to test everything from high heels to hiking boots. You know, we will test a, you know, a sandal, a sneaker, a lifestyle shoe, a kid's shoe, all these things, basketball, soccer, you name it. Like we're testing everything. And that's really opened our minds to the two things that we need to keep in mind when we're looking at what makes a shoe better is who is the individual and then what is the specifics of the activity that we're, they are doing? So we could say, like, let's go out of running for a second. And let's look at the work and occupational category. It's one of the oh, ones yeah. based on our database has the biggest opportunity for improvement because most of the shoes suck. There are a few that are really good. And that gap is massive. That's how we know there's massive room for the average to improve. So if we look at, like, say, a restaurant worker. A restaurant worker, they're going to be moving in multiple directions over multiple surfaces with multiple contaminants. They're going to be on their feet all day. They're going to need something that is going to be dramatically different than somebody that's working in a warehouse where they're maybe working on solid concrete all day, probably not being exposed to as many things that can cause slip hazards, but there's going to maybe be a lot more trip hazards. And they're maybe going to have a lot heavier things that they could drop on their feet. So they're going to need protection there. So if we look at this, you know, traction, some fatigue reducing elements is going to be really important for the restaurant worker. When we look at the occupational worker, things maybe like a, an impact protection from like dro dropping things on their toes, like a toe guard and a met guard. 
those things are going to be more important or a trip guard so they don't stumble over the electrical cable that was going across the, uh, the walkway. So if we look at these things, you know, these are both categorized as occupational shoes, totally different needs. Same thing if we look at outdoor footwear right now, which somehow gets grouped together, that could be trail running and hiking. And even hiking could be light hiking where you go for a couple hours to a multi-day backpacking trip where you are going to be eight to 10 hours a day with a 60 pound pack on your back and exposed to different temperatures and snakes that can bite your feet and all this. <laughs> so we really need to look at like who is the individual and the activity that they're doing. And this is why I, what I love about all this is this, this gives us free reign to say there's room for a lot of different shoes to exist on the shoe wall right? because not everybody's the same. We need to build lots of different shoes to meet these different categorical needs that also do change over time. The way people run now isn't the way people were running 10 years ago. Like nobody was doing ultra marathons 10 years ago and now it's relatively commonplace. So we do need to change and constantly make things better. So what are the, for some of the examples you just gave, there's obviously usage specific issues for something better, but what are some of the things that you've seen that are say common factors among better versus worse? A lot of things that we, we analyze in the lab, but the, the big ones that we really boil down to is comfort, function, which is going to be more like the, uh, you know, the flex and the torsion of the shoe and the impact protection. Then we're going to look at durability and traction. Those are the big four things that Helux focuses on. And there's like little subgroups in each one of those. But if we look at comfort, I think comfort is the one thing that we all agree is important. You know, I don't talk to anybody that says, I wish my shoes were less comfortable. <laughs> It's, it's a thing, and, when people ask me what I do for a living, I, I answer by saying, let me ask you a weird question. Do your feet feel better at the end of the day than they did at the beginning of the day? And yeah. the day they say no. And then yeah, we right? go from there. So we just got to make them comfortable. Uh, so anyway, science, I think, has generally done a pretty bad job at making and under, understanding what is comfort. So we, we tried to set out and figure out, like, let's try and find new measurement systems that can help analyze, like, when somebody says this shoe is more comfortable, what is it? So the three things that we commonly test for in comfort is going to be the fit, which fit is our number one requested test. We use sensors to quantify shoe fit, underfoot cushioning, and then uh, temperature management. Now, here's some of the things that are pretty exciting for you, because I think if we look back to that original zero shoe, right, the sandal, if we look at that, you know, it's, it was very thin. I had a pair of them. You know, you have traction on the bottom, very thin amount of rubber just to kind of distribute some pre or foam to distribute some pressure. And then a really, you know, minimal upper, not to use a cliched word, right? But if we think about this, two of the three things that influence comfort for us are going to be fit and temperature management. Now, fit, it's mainly around the ball of the foot. And in the original zero shoe, there wasn't anything that was going to constrict the ball of the foot or the toes, uh, particularly like the pinky and the fourth toe. So, okay, there's a good chance that that's going to be comfortable. The other one that surprises a lot of people, including myself when we first started observing it, is temperature. So temperature, the bottom of our feet are going to be pretty much the same temperature regardless because the skin's really thick, there's not a lot of sweat glands, and it's always in contact with something. It doesn't matter if you're in a sandal or a work boot, it's, it's full contact. And those little purples that people put in, so like total waste of time. But the top of the foot is really where we see temperature differences. Right. And one of the things that influence that is in a normal shoe, we have a thick padded tongue that's overlapped by two sidewalls of the vamp, and then we're going to have lacing going across it too. So there's no place for that heat to vent out. So what we find is that in the first 90 seconds that somebody wears a shoe, 
if their foot temperature heats up beyond a certain amount, which is usually around like one and a half degrees centigrade, if their foot increases by that amount, they're going to say that shoe is less comfortable, but they won't say that it's because their foot feels hot, which is crazy. So it's just, their brain realizes that, ooh, my foot's getting hot in this thing. That sucks. I'm going to tell your brain that I don't like it as much. You're going to say, ooh, I don't like that one. But, you know, we, we won't know why. We'll just say it's less comfortable. What if my feet are imperial and really powerful here? Sorry, I said, have Joe. What if my feet are imperial and not metric? How much do they have to <laughs> I know, right? I know. We, we, we struggle so often with, uh, you know, I, I love standard, but uh, yeah, it's, it's changing, changing well, uh, temperatures based on uh, who we're talking to is tough. Right. That's super, super interesting. I, I love the fact that people misrepresent what the cause of an experience is. And I'll tell you a funny story. This is, again, totally tangential about that. So way back when, starting when I was 12 until I was about 20, I made a living doing magic. One of the tricks was my favorite trick. The way it looked is you would take a pen, you'd like see somebody had a pen and you take the pen from them. They go, oh, there's one of those radio pens and you click it and suddenly music starts coming out of the pen. You click it and the music stops and you, know, you just keep doing this. And people are like freaking out and then you hand them their pen back. Well, the way the trick worked, is that you had a radio shoved into your pants with a switch that you had behind your belt. Basically, it was just you know, two pieces of metal that were separated by some foam. And if you expand your belly, then the switch would hit. And then the radio. Oh, that's so pants. funny. Now, here's the kick. So the radio is like two feet from where the thing is. But people's brain, as soon as you say there's sound coming out of this and they hear the sound, their brain makes the sound come out of that. So we're yep. constantly doing these weird things where we're misrepresenting our own experience because we don't know. I mean, one of the craziest things about our own experience, check this one out, is a thing called binding. If I touch your nose at the same time I touch your toe, you experience it as happening simultaneously, except that it doesn't happen simultaneously because the nerves from your nose to your brain are shorter than from your toe to your brain. So these things happen at a different time in your brain, but your brain binds them together to make it feel like they happen at the same time. And we have no way of experiencing this as other than simultaneous, but that's not what happens. So anyway, so I love the temperature thing, which is really, really interesting and actually makes me think about an argument I've been having about some designs uh, lately, but the other one- <laughs> Good, hopefully get, making them better, right? Well, yeah, actually. But I want to get into the part that you mentioned, the middle one, which is cushioning, because this yeah. is one of those things that as far as I can tell, it gets so massively misunderstood. The way we like to say it is, look, if you lie down on a Tempur-Pedic bed, it's going to feel great, but that doesn't mean it's good for you or will feel good over time. And especially yeah. as it slowly breaks down, that's going to change things over time as well. And it's going to be so slow as to be imperceptible. And by the time you notice it, it's too late and your body's all out of whack and all the rest. So talk to me about that cushioning thing from what you've seen and how that relates to comfort in more than just putting it on your foot and feeling, hey, it's like a great bed. Yeah, you know, so that, this is like one of the big things that we have is kind of our big missions right now is what we call the memory foam myth, because like you said, the Tempur-Pedic thing has gotten everybody thinking memory foam is great, but it really does not cushion well for shoes because it cushions great for like one or two steps. And then after that, it just doesn't respond enough before you take your next step. And right. after 10 steps, it's really bad. You know, so this is where the, the important thing for us is that the, the cushioning has to be appropriate to the individual and the activity. And so like recently, we've been doing a lot of studies on work boots and uh, cowboy boots, big work boots meant for like, you know, people trucking around like, you know, a 40 pound tool belt plus like, you know, carrying heavy equipment and things like that. And a lot of times, if you look at the, that product, it's a really hard polyurethane sole. 
and maybe they have, you know, three to five millimeters of foam in, inside of the shoe and the insole that they think is going to cushion it. And that material might be great if you looked at like a 150 pound person that was just in a, in a lifestyle shoe that had a nice soft EVA sole that that might actually cushion. And these people that we're testing, it completely bottoms out. Right. And so it's really not doing anything. And so, you know, we're testing maybe different foam compounds, trying to find a difference and all of them suck. Find right. the, the, of course. The, the best of nothing. They, they just don't work for that individual in the activity. Right. And so where we need to change the, the, the habits of these footwear brands to say like, hey, let's rethink how we're getting comfort in work boots because this is your customer and this is the amount of force they're putting on it. You know, and so I, I think that's where, where things get really interesting. And, and another one that I'll kind of say is just a common issue that we face is a lot of the big athletic brands want people to be able to purchase the same shoe on the shoe wall that the pro athlete don't even that get me sounds started. great in theory. Oh my God. But you know, like, let's just like, I'm just going to take a big athlete. He's one of the most famous athletes. Plus he plays for my LA Lakers when they're not on the coronavirus uh, hold is LeBron James. LeBron James is a massive individual, right? I am a very slight individual. I love to wear LeBron James shoes because I love LeBron. I want to be like him, right? I want to feel like him. But if he's wearing the shoe that cushions him and gives his like whatever 270 pound body that's coming down on massive jump impacts, when I'm walking around that, that stuff is going to be hard as a brick to me. Like my body's not going to deflect it for me as the individual and the ability level that I have playing my terrible basketball. So, you know, I think that there's, this is where things have to be really, really specific. And so if we put it into the context of your shoe, one thing is, is volume doesn't always indicate more cushion. It's, you know, that nature of what type of material are you using? What are the specifics of the activity, the individual? And then, you know, what do you, what type of sensation do you want? You know, I think, Stephen, I know you, you like, you do a lot of like fast track work and things like that. I love, you know, I'm not a long distance guy. I like running fast miles. You know, a lot of this kind You're of- a mile, hold on. You're telling me it's possible to run an entire mile, like in a row? That's yeah, crazy. right? It's crazy. That's, that's insane. Who would do that? <laughs> well, yeah, I got a, I got a two mile horn here because you know I do the dog mile every year. And last year, my dog and I ran a 422. So I like running fast. Nice. But you know, a lot of the normal like kind of running shoes aren't good for that. Like right. especially now things have gotten a lot softer and a lot of higher volume. It oh, feels wait, hold on. to run a fast mile wait. on that. Like, have you? I don't. I don't know if you've seen. I mean, look, I'm going to go back to me as a hundred meter runner. So Nike yeah. just announced, and I'm, it's not that I want to pick on them, but my God, it's easy to. Nike just announced their new sprinting spike and it has a big cushioning thing in the forefoot. Why? Wait, you're telling me that reducing impact forces, if, if it does that, which it arguably doesn't, it probably just slows them down or changes the curve. But suffice it to say, you're going to be putting less force in the ground or putting force into the ground slower and that's going to make you faster. How? When we know... So can I tell you something that maybe somebody in your audience has started to test this? I have been wanting to test this theory for a while now, for the last two years for sure, especially when the Vaporfly came out, right? So if we look at the Vaporfly, let's assume all other features being equal, right? Weight is equal. Stiffness and the rocker shape are equal, right? If we take a shoe that has a thicker stack height, right. that's going to lengthen out somebody's stride length by a small amount right over the course of a marathon does that mean that they would actually be taking fewer steps over a mile in the higher stack height shoe again all of the features being equal than the lower stack height shoe and i don't know the answer to this it's just That's something interesting 
pondered. And it's hard because there are a lot of things like I think the Vaporfly actually is a great shoe. We've done independent testing on it and gotten the same exact results that they have. So I know that there's some truth there for elite level marathoners. Well, Again, I, want to, I want to pause for a second. So, uh, so first of all, it's a really interesting question. All I could think of is I was at the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus sitting in like the very back row with a couple of people. And as they're doing the initial parade, there's a guy walking by in 20 foot stilts. And I said, do you want to see the guy in the stilts fall down? They went, what? what? What are you going to do? I said, I'm not going to leave my seat. Do you want to see him fall down? They said, what are you going to do? I said, it's going to nothing. I'm literally not going to leave my seat. And they went, okay. <laughs> and so as he walks by, I yell, hey, Nick. And he turns around and almost stumbles and he doesn't fall down. But I recognize the guy through his makeup. It's someone I'd known. Oh, God. But of course, it's so interesting. You know, he's taking these giant long strides, but it's slow because it's a lot of a weight that he's trying to move. So in this is a comment that I made, you know, the biggest thing about the Vaporfly is that it's lightweight. That's a big deal. And then, yeah, Eesh. if it's possibly going to increase your stride length and be without increasing the amount of effort it takes to do that, there may be a there there for that. Everything else yeah. that I've heard, is, you know, it's like nonsense. Someone whose name will remain nameless because I don't want to get him too mad at me until I get him on this podcast and then start yelling at him, talks about how the carbon fiber is acting like a lever. It's like, no, a lever needs a fulcrum and there's no fulcrum. And they talk about the rocker bottom. And then you look at the close-up video of Kipchoge when he's doing the two-hour marathon and every one of the runners that him and all the people that are pacing him, they're all four-foot and mid-foot strikers. They never touch the heel. They never use the rocker bottom at all. So the whole idea of that is you know, complete nonsense also. So there's people who are making up all these stories and what you came up with is the only logical one that I've ever heard. So... Again, I don't know, but maybe with their sprint spike, that's going to be doing something. No, because it's, it's, only, it's, only, it's only like, you know, like four millimeters higher. It's actually what they did is they took the cushioning that they were putting on the inside of the shoe and they put it on the outside of the shoe. Well, the other thing I will say, and this is something that I've been saying for a long time and I've never been proven wrong on it, is little things make a huge difference in footwear. Hopefully there is something that they've been able to find out with that and hopefully it makes our athletes better. We'll see. Well, two things. One, Nick we'll did something great. He took a pair of Vaporfly and he ran, I don't know if it was a 400 or a mile. Uh, no, uh, sorry. He'd been running in those, but what he did, he said, let's see how they work short distance. So he did a hundred meters in those and then a hundred meters in his sprinting spikes and in his spikes, he was significantly faster. And so same, and, and he said the same thing. These are cushiony. The Vaporflies are really cushiony. So they're really kind of slowing me down on the ground. And yeah. it seems likely, but yeah, those little things are interesting, but that just, there's so many ideas that someone comes up with and then someone wins a race with that product. And then everyone assumes that that product must be better, even though on any given Sunday, someone else could have won that race. And so there's so many design elements that I see, especially in sprinting spikes, actually, where there's clearly no research proving that that thing is better but it's become the ubiquitous design element because someone won a race in it. Or to your yeah. point about, you know, uh, about looking at um, professional athletes, I say this all the time. It's like, what do you care what Kipchoge ran in? You're not a 105-pound Kenyan who runs at 13 miles an hour. Exactly. That gets to train all day, every day. Right, right. Who gets paid to do it? And I won't even get into the fact that he did these, you know, world record setting things without any blood testing at all. I'm not making any guesses. I'm not saying, I'm not making any assertions. I'm just saying it's interesting. So, all right. Uh, so I want to go back though. I want to talk about some more little things. And this kind of goes into what we're talking about with comfort is women's shoes, right? This is a big thing for me. And I will tell you if there's one number to take away from what is important about women's shoes is Helox tests a lot of product, right? Like we're, we've already tested over 
130 styles to date this year, and we're just for, through the first three months. Our database is over 2,000 shoes, everything from high heels to hiking boots. Running, though, is one of our bigger database categories. If you look at our running shoe database, we test a women's shoe, one woman's shoe for every 7.8 men's shoes. First of all, who's sending you 0.8 of a shoe? That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, that's insane for the simplest reason is that women buy more shoes than men. Right? So I know. There's, there's no logic that makes any sense with this except for a few things that we'll talk about in a second. But it's not limited to running. It's also in basketball. We're testing about three and a half men's shoes to one woman's shoe. Outdoors, about three to one occupational is uh, is a just under three to one. So for almost every category that we have with two exceptions, we are testing dramatically more men's shoes than women's shoes. And if you think about like, so what is the impact of this? Well, number one, we've already talked about like the shoe needs to be specific to the individual and the activity that they're doing. Right. So that we're assuming that women are equal to men and not in the women's equality way. Like the women are the same as a man and that the activity that they're doing is the same as a man. And these are terrible assumptions. And then if you look at the other outcome that I think is really the most important thing, if we look at one of the things that we've talked about is important is comfort, right? Comfort is huge for all categories. Overall comfort scores that our women give us are lower for each category than what men give us. So we can see on these, you know, almost 2,000 shoes, that women's shoes are less comfortable than men's. And we can relate this directly to the fact that we aren't testing and analyzing women's shoes enough. So when they report less comfort, is it for similar reasons that anybody else would report discomfort, but they're just, they're just having more of it or for different reasons? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting on that one. Fit is the one where most women complain. And that is, that is consistent across all categories, except for women's sandals. Because usually a lot of like, say, thong sandals, because they're so visible, they actually shape them differently for women and they use thinner straps and they just right. fit them for women and they have a different one for men. So that's not a factor. Uh, and then also for dress shoes, again, because there aren't as many men wearing high heel shoes as women. So a lot of those are fit more to women and tested. More, and that's what our database backs up as well. But if we look at it for fit in general, and I, and I hope a lot of your women viewers are, are, are going to nod their head when I say this. The majority of women's shoes are going to fit loose in the heel and tight around the ball of the foot. And that's going to be something that has to do with, you see, small. Remember, small is important in footwear. It's small differences in the proportion of the heel shape and the forefoot shape in women versus men. So I love that you have science to back that up because this is an argument that I get into not infrequently where people complain that we sell men's shoes and women's shoes. And they go, but I'm a woman and I have a wider foot. I go, well, then buy the quote men's shoe. I'm a man, I have a narrow foot, quote, buy the quote women's shoe. Problem is this is how people shop and there are statistical differences. And people yeah. like to pretend that either they're not or that, that you could make shoes and describe them in some other way that would be more useful. And I go, it's possibly true, but because people are so attuned to buying this way, we can't be the company that creates this whole new way of thinking about how to get shoes. So yeah. that's outrageous. You know, I was at an event for footwear CEOs a while ago where there was some apparel company, women's apparel company, who had just gotten into footwear. And it was like a big deal, apparently. I will tell you candidly that at these events for footwear CEOs, people take this stuff way too seriously. You know, I was 
look, it'd be better if we were all sort of malice and we all just had the same uniform and we didn't have to pay so much attention to filling our closet with new clothes and trying to express our personality. We could actually have a personality. That would be nice. But since that's not going to happen, but the kicker on this, they had all these new shoes. They were all high heeled something or other, but as they were showing photos, there wasn't one photo where the person who was in the shoe fit the shoe. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, these are your new shoes. You picked the models and you couldn't pick people who even fit the shoe. That ain't good. And the number one thing that I saw people spilling out over the edges because the toe box is way too small. Oh yeah. So this goes to our, the thing we let in with of women having no feet. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts about why people are ignoring women and their feet when it's obviously more important because of their buying habits and the number of things they do and the number of different types of shoes they typically have? And I'm not yeah, saying they buy more shoes, but. You know, it's kind of fun because I, I, we didn't really structure a lot of this conversation, but a lot of the topics that we've, we've gone into already are going to feed into this. So number one is that running shoes are the most researched footwear that we are aware of. You know, the, the, if you look at study volume, the number of shoes have been tested, all that stuff. And for that end, most running shoes are actually pretty good now. But so running is very... Don't, don't, don't get me started yes. on that one. <laughs> the, yeah. So let me say, compared to other categories that we work in. <laughs> okay. All right. There's, right. there's a lot of crap footwear product out there. So yeah, mine I'll, I'll give you that. still very, very big in front of me. But if we look at that, if you look at the makeup of most running shoe brands, and there, again, there are going to be some exceptions, but on average, there are more men that are designing and developing the shoes. True. And at that end, most of the time when we're designing product, we want to make product that works for us. So when these shoes are coming in and they want to get feedback, they're mainly testing it on the guys that are designing and developing it. Hmm. Or if they, you know, samples are expensive, if they're only going to get one sample, they're going to get a men's size nine. So now that's trickled into this idea that like, Okay, if we do that, then we'll just scale it out to all the other sizes. And for women, we'll shrink it and pink it. So it's just become this idea that it started out with a lot of men that were making the product. They made it for themselves. And now we just kind of have this pattern that we do. So we've been, again, like I want to try and make the entire thing about shoes better. We've been trying to challenge brands to say, like, let's do one-to-one testing men's and women's. And we're trying to take off any barrier that we can for that time, cost, all that stuff. We're trying to remove it just because we know it's important. So we, we, last year we worked with over 50 different footwear brands. I'm very happy to say we have five that for 2020 have already committed to doing one-to-one men's to women's. But again, if you look at it on a percent side, that's only 10% of the companies that we work with, which is a fraction of all the companies in the world. So there's still a lot of work to do with this to get it to where we can test women's products better. And there are certain categories that like, I think also we, we marginalize women like work boots. There's a lot of women that wear work boots and very rarely are work boots being tested on women. Another one is basketball. I will tell you the two categories of testers that come into Helux that absolutely hate their product is, uh, remember you talked about your running test where you wear the shoe that you like and then you go test other shoes and go barefoot. We'll ask women in those two categories to tell us what product they like and they're like, I don't like any of it. I hate them. But these are just the best that I've found. So basketball and work boots are just atrocious because you know it's it's a high activity yeah. with multi-directional stuff and uh, so there's a lot of demands being placed on the shoes and they just don't fit very well yeah we actually we, we, this kind of goes into another thing is it's not just women that are being ignored generally a lot of shoes are just made for north american and european feet totally 
and this conversation, we can also say that Asian people don't have feet <laughs> and South American people in, in, in Pacific Islanders, they don't have feet, you know, so it's right. not just women. There are other groups, but, you know, as far as a, the size, women is the one that is the biggest group that we see being ignored. It's really interesting. I'll confess, we, we kind of ignored women for something. We, we actually, uh, let's see, can I say this legally? We developed a shoe for a particular sport and we made a men's version simply because we knew more men who were in that sport. We got approached by a woman who was in that sport. We gave her the shoe. It didn't fit perfectly. She had a great response though. She said, I couldn't sprain my ankle in these if you paid me to, which was nice because it was, that's the number one injury in this particular sport. And frankly, you know, we're a really small company. We didn't have the cash to make something specific for her because just making the molds for the outsole was going to cut be $1,000. And I mean, it was going to cost us like five grand just to make a, one product to test. And we're not quite there yet. So that's our excuse. But, because, but everything else we do, we're very attentive to these the differences in foot shape. I mean, when we first started the business, we were doing custom made sandals for people where they would trace mm-hmm. their foot, send us a tracing and we'd make a shoe. I remember this. Yeah. yeah. So we have like 6,000 tracings, which gave us a really interesting database once we started doing closed toe shoes that mm-hmm. informed how we, how we made those. And they're never going to be perfect for everyone. You know, there's always a bell curve and there's going to be people at either end. Although the people at either end get mad at you for not accommodating them, no matter. I had one person get really mad yeah. because, you know, we didn't, our shoes didn't fit them. And I said, I've got to ask you, I'm not trying to be obnoxious, but what shoes have you found that do fit you? And they said, none. I said, well, I don't know what you're asking me to do then. And it's painful for me because I want to be accommodating for everyone. But yeah, yeah, we want, we want people to be happy, right? Like, yeah. but it's, it's hard to make everybody happy. It's impossible, unfortunately. But I want to back up to something that I'm really, really curious about. So we know people who work on factory floors, who are on their feet all day, who are in our shoes and who report that they're pain-free for the first time ever. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not making medical claims. I'm doing anything like that. I'm not saying anecdotes equal data, but when you have a preponderance of anecdotal data, you can't ignore it. What occurs to me, and, and I think about this with basketball too, or soccer, for example, where there are people who are growing up in places where they don't have shoes to begin with. And so this is all leading into the same idea, which is when you're doing testing, is there a way to account for one of two things, either the person's natural gait and or anything about what's going on with their foot structurally or you know, the condition of their foot? Because if you get someone habituated to wearing big, thick, padded motion control shoes and they overstride and heel strike no matter what they do, that's going to be a different experience than if they're used to getting their foot underneath their body when it lands and using their muscles, ligaments, and tendons as shock absorbers instead of trying to rely on the foam. Or similarly, anyone who has stronger feet, independent of arch height, is going to be different than someone who has weaker feet because they've been in shoes that don't let their feet move. And I'm just really curious about how one would factor those things into research to determine what kind of information you're then getting about things like comfort, fit, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's a a great question, Stephen. So one of the things that that we like to do at Helux, and I think something that's made us really special is we like testing to be done really fast. As you know, the footwear industry moves really quickly, so we do everything in two weeks. And we have to be able to test a large enough amount of people in those two weeks to be able to be representative of the widest part of the population that a shoe is going to be targeted towards. So I like this golden foot theory of like, oh, this is the one foot that we're going to put it on. If it works for them, it always works. We have 
over 300 people in our tester database that represent different activities, different body weights, different foot structures. You know, so we have wide and narrows. We have flexible and inflexible. We have people that are under 30. We have people that are over 60. You know, we have all these different things because people are going to change. One thing that's just a really fun case study example of this is uh, we've been doing, like I said, occupational is a big one for us right now. And um, we were doing some uh, boots that were meant for people that are in like high flexible positions. So like gardeners or landscapers that are or roofers that are like leaning up on these roofs or HVAC people that are on their hands and knees crawling. And the idea was, is a lot of these boots are really stiff. So if we look at numbers, right, human ball of foot joint, uh, if you look at the medical text says it's supposed to flex about 45 degrees. The average foot when walking or running flexes about 25 degrees. So we know that most shoes should have at least 20, 25 degrees of flex without restriction, right? Now, there's certain people that have a lot more flex, like offensive linemen in football. They flex a lot more. We know that. So, but a lot of work boots, they really only flex about five or 10 degrees. They're just Mm -hmm. because they have to be so durable, right? But we wanted to see what did these workers who are on their knees uh, kneeling and squatting all day. What do they do? So we actually did a motion capture study in our lab. We found that their feet flex when they squat or kneel 75 to 80 degrees on average, which is bananas. We don't think that the human body should do do that. Remember, think this is their activity. This is what they do. It's easier if they're limber into that position and they do it so much that they get strong into that position so they don't get a lot of injuries. But now this is an even bigger problem that the boot that they're putting on when it's new only flexes like 10% of the range that they need it to flex to. So that's why it takes them so long to break it in. So this is when we go into these things. You really have to study the target population group of who's going to be with that product to really boil down how it's going to work in the real world. Uh, You know, I'm going to harp on this for a a bit more. I think about the study that Dan Lieberman published in, I can't remember if it was Nature or Science, I always forget that was comparing habitually barefoot populations to shod populations or taking bare, yeah. habitually barefoot people and putting them in shoes and watching how quickly their gait change. And I also think about how you can, you know, you spot someone 50 yards away, you see them take two steps, you know who they are, or, and they often, you know, are walking the way one of their parents did. The way we move is so, so central to, in many ways, our identity that when people get into different footwear, this is the thing that Bale Sand saw in his lab, you know, every different shoe engendered a different gait. And to, unless you're a super, super elite runner where you can put bricks on there. I was going to say the elites know how to adapt to anything to be able to produce an outcome, right? That's, That's mind blowing things. Yeah. No, we, anything we, and they're going to kick ass. Yeah. We, we could literally practically put bricks on their feet and they would still, you know, be running, running sub four miles. So it yep. was, it was fascinating to see, but norm, but normal people don't have that. And now the, the interesting thing about that is some of the footwear companies are trying to take advantage of this in ways that are insane. I won't mention this one by name, but they, for all, if they could, they would make a shoe that was the thing you wore when you walked into the bathroom and a different shoe for when you walked out of the bathroom because you're now a little lighter. So, you know, they're trying to find every possible permutation of here's why you need something unique for this particular activity. But the biggest thing I think of is how the footwear affects your gait and how what we keep seeing over and over and over for the last 10 years is when you start doing things where you're having to rely on using your body the way it's designed, then it tends to have beneficial results. And everything else, there's a guy that I know who's at Nike for 30 years. He said, I worked with Bowman for 30 years to try to make shoes that improve performance. We couldn't do it. And you know, that's not, that information doesn't come out. 
No one thinks of it that way because we've been sold on this idea for so long, not just in footwear, in all categories, that there is a simple, easy solution and technology is always going to be better than what you're built with. I don't know where the hell I'm going with this thought. So wait, let me, let me, let me riff on that a little bit, just to be a little contrarian here. Cause this is something fun that uh, my good friend, uh, Joe Rubio, who's a great runner and, and coach and uh, run, owns the running warehouse. He and I just like to talk about stuff because we just think it's fun to experiment and do different things. Right. And the other week we were having lunch and we were talking about those brush spikes Remember those? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. So wait for people who don't know, it was a puma spike. It was a puma sprinting spike, and instead of having just like five to eight actual metal spikes, it had like five hundred tiny little little spikes. You think about taking a hairbrush yep. and sticking that on the bottom of your yep. foot. Yep, these tiny little things. Everybody that was an elite runner that ran in those set world records. Right. You know, and to your point, like we like to think of like, oh hey, there's you know the person that won the race did this or whatever. Those shoes had some magic to them so much that they got banned before we could really test well, it. Actually, hold, I want to jump on that. So I don't think they set, I don't know if they set world records. They definitely set personal best. And it was only like two guys, I think. But from, from, so I, I have an article, I'll send it to you. Oh, I think there was three people. And right. these, these aren't at like, like podunk races. These are at like no, no, real races. Fine races. Yeah. I believe it was three or four different runners that ran one of them set Olympic, one of them set world records twice and had them outlawed. And the other two like set like the world's fastest okay. for the year or number like that. So, so here's they the were thing. way better. All of them were personal bests as well. So if right. you look, it's already taking an elite level guy, making it better. But here's the problem. We never got to fully vet it out because they wanted to kill the technology for being unfair. It's exactly, exactly where I was going. It's an interesting, it's very interesting, except that, of course, there's no controls because we don't have an identical twin. We're not in the multiverse where, you know, we get that same sprinter and before he puts on the shoe, he splits into two people and he, one wears the regular shoe and the other wears the new shoe. So the controls yeah. are iffy at best. But at the same time, there are reasons that I can think of for what, well, there's two reasons I can think of for why that what might have happened as well. One is totally psychological because we know that there's a massive brain function that has to do with how well you perform. Essentially, your brain is always trying to limit you to a certain extent. Totally. So you don't get hurt. And so if you, so there's a placebo effect is what I'm saying. So if you think these things are going to be better, you may, your brain may not respond to the same signals that it usually uses to slow you down. So there may be a placebo effect there. And it's something I've argued about the vapor fly is there's definitely some placebo effects involved because not everyone runs better in the shoe. Certainly Kipchoge didn't run 4% better in the shoe or he would have run something like 156, not 159, 40. Again, be that as it may. But the second thing is, there's two parts. The second thing is that the brush spike may have been interesting because the two biggest things that are, that are going to affect your speed in 100 meters is your drive phase and the traction you need for the drive phase. And maybe metal spikes are not the best way to get traction on a modern track surface. And then how, how well you're performing in the maximum velocity phase, basically how slow you slow down is the mm -hmm. other part. And, there, and again, spikes might, might not be the best thing for that. Now, but here's the, here's the other part that's crazy. Puma was going to be able to patent that. And so the reason they got banned was because everyone else suddenly went, instead of doing the normal thing of let's copy this, they knew they couldn't copy this. And so suddenly it was banned because of all the other companies going, well, this can't be fair. So mm -hmm. now what's happening with the maximalist shoes is instead of trying to ban the Nike Vaporfly, Nike's using this as a PR play going, let's see if you can ban us. And that's, you know, instant press and everyone else is just doing their version of the same thing. 
if there was a way of banning a shit ton of foam with carbon fiber in the middle, then or, or patenting that, then I guarantee these shoes would have been banned because everyone else would have said, we have no way of doing our version of the same thing. So as a master sprinter, I'm of course very interested in things like the brush spike. I'm not suggesting we may be working on something that could upend sprinting spikes forever. I would never say anything like that in advance of us <laughs> releasing something that we may or may not be working on. But there are a lot of interesting things about, I guess this is where I'm going with this. Little things make a big difference. And sometimes the littlest things are just basic physics. It's yeah. like if you just look at the, ba- if you understand physics, then a bunch of hand waving about extra padding, extra control, blah, 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 makes no sense. And then you just get down to the bare essentials of what makes something fast. It's the right amount of force applied to the ground in the right amount of time at the right angle. That's the basics when we're talking about running. Everything else is, you know, have to look at everything else in relation to, is this improving the way we're applying force, the speed we're applying the force and the angle we're applying force? If not, then it's bullshit. Because because you're not going to get we'll prove it. We'll prove that it's bullshit or not. How about that? <laughs> okay. Well, but to that point, I mean, one of the things that we, that you and I have both talked about is this whole idea of energy return, where which is just a marketing jargon for how badly does some amount of cushioning suck? And you know, again, all you have to do is look at it from the basic idea of physics that we know anything that slows the amount of force, slows the force production down, reduces the amount of force or spreads out the force is going to make things not faster. And all foam does that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then, what more do you need to say? It's true. <laughs> yep. So, all right. We could keep doing this all day long and, uh, and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll find a part two at some point. I was going to say, we'll find, we'll find part two when, when someone comes out with something that we know is complete nonsense and that they ask you to prove that it's true. And then we'll, we'll, well you know, what, let's, let's be positive and maybe, maybe we can do a part two 12 months from now. And I can say like, Hey, you know what? In, in 2020, we did one-to-one testing on men's and women's shoes across the board. And we're seeing improvements in the product that's out there for women. I'm yeah. all for it. I think that's a good one. A huge um, accomplishment. Yeah. I think that would be a very big deal. Um, I'm sitting here looking at both men's and women's versions of uh, actually the shoe that I'm wearing right now. And uh, they're very different shoes. So, but anyway, nice. All right. You've got to run. I've got to run. Jeffrey, as always, total pleasure. I'm really looking forward to seeing what else comes out of your lab and your head because it's always provocative, sometimes more than it gets credit for being. And <laughs> I would like that to see that change too. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure hanging out with you, man. And uh, my best to you. Thank you. Thank you. So let me wrap it up. First of all, once again, thank you. Secondly, for everyone else who's been uh, listening or watching, thank you. You know what to do. Go to www join the movementmovement.com where you'll find all the previous episodes and all the different ways you can engage with us. If you have any questions or have any recommendations or suggestions, anyone you think should be on the podcast, just drop me an email, move at join the movementmovement.com. Again, as I like to say, if you want to be part of the tribe and make the movement of movement happen, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. But more importantly, live life feet first and have fun. Take care. You've been listening to the Movement Movement Podcast with host Stephen Sashin. Remember to join the tribe and subscribe at jointhemovementmovement.com.